I'm Floyd Hall, and I have the pleasure today of speaking with visual artist Katrina Andre. We are here in the Hammonds House Museum for her current exhibition, Katrina. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing very well. You're from New Orleans, which is one of my favorite cities uh, to visit. I have a lot of family in Louisiana. What is your favorite thing about New Orleans? Oh, man. You're you're trying to make me choose, Mm. and it's a trap. Mm. (laughs) My favorite thing about New Orleans is the fall. I'll I'll give you that. But, I mean, snowballs, crawfish, jazz fest, Mardi Gras. Now, 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 what Food. about what about the fall in New Orleans? Is, the weather. Okay. So, if you come any other time, um, if you come April to October, you'll think that you might die in your own drowning in your own sweat. Okay, it's so hot. Mm-hmm. Um, so your path as an artist, where did where did that come from um, in your upbringing? When did you begin to see yourself as that? Always, and literally always, since the time I could pick up a pencil. My grandma still had all of my drawings from when I was three years old up until, you know, she stopped, and up until she died, really. But I would sell, I would draw Ninja Turtles in the third grade and sell them for 25 cents so I could buy a snack. I was always drawing. People asked me what I want to be when I grew up. I always said artist, even though I didn't know that that was a profession. I just knew that I liked doing it. And my parents never told me otherwise. So I, I pretty much always wanted to do this. I just didn't know how it was going to happen, but I always wanted to do it. I wanted to start with your printmaking practice. Um, talk about maybe when you first got introduced to printmaking and um, where did you see yourself as an artist taking uh, your career in that medium? I was first introduced to printmaking when I was an undergrad at Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge. It was an elective class that I took as part of my major. I really liked the the feeling of it, the feeling of meditation that I got whenever I went through any process of printmaking, whether it be intaglio, lithography, woodcut, silkscreen, and it was all very new to me. I had never been exposed to printmaking before. I had seen it before, but I had never been exposed to the, uh, the process. Um, I ended up getting my minor in it, and then later on in life, I went back to Louisiana State University to get my master's in printmaking, and I just studied it as much as I could. I fell in love with woodcut of all of the printmaking mediums that I was using, that and lithography, and I, I used that in my work. What about woodcut and lithography um, really spoke to you? I really liked how both of those mediums allowed you to really be free in your mark making. I love I love drawing. And so I just really liked the way that I could freely just either move my hand across a stone or draw with sumi ink on a wood block and be really expressive in my drawing, um, but also have the the technical skills behind that to know what it would look like in the end and to have control even though I was moving freely. Okay. Um, I want to talk about race and culture and stereotypes. Um, A lot of your work on display here at the Hammonds House Museum 
uh, really dives deep into how we see each other and maybe how we've been conditioned to see each other um, through the media or through conversations or just through history. So um, the stereotypes that that you um, investigate in your work, can we talk about maybe some of the the roots of where you're coming from in those works? I investigate stereotypes that are placed against people of color, specifically black people. Um, I go into the history of them. So where do they start? What are they? How are they perpetuated? What does it mean, the symbolism that it is included, everything about it? I touch on different topics in each piece. So whether it be education, whether it be sexuality, whether it be just otherness in general, uh, whether it be work, wage, all of those things that fit into everyday life of people of color. Now, you're a New Orleans native. New Orleans, like many southern cities, maybe any city, regardless of whether you're north or south, um, New Orleans has a particular culture, a strong culture, but there's still this sense of tension between white and black in New Orleans and maybe even, uh, you know, affluence or, you know, lower class in New Orleans. So if you could talk about maybe your earliest experiences with stereotypes and what that did or how that affected you. Um, so in New Orleans, like in a lot of other cities, um, class and race, they're best friends, they're inseparable, they're married, they're never getting a divorce. And so I saw that before I moved back to New Orleans, actually, when I moved to Baton Rouge to get my master's in printmaking, I started to try to understand why these two things were tied together. What is really holding people of color back? And I came to the conclusion that it is the stereotypes that we as a society hold against people of color. So not necessarily the pitfalls of people of color, but stereotypes themselves, I feel like. So what are these stereotypes that we have against people of color that may initially keep them back? Um, you know, there are interesting studies done that, that are nationally known. You know, what does it mean when you apply for a job when your name is Jamal versus when your name is Greg? And just the stereotypes you place against a person just by their name. You don't you've never seen the person you don't even know if they're black or white you assume and then because of that what do you assume you might assume jamal is less educated that jamal comes from an economically disadvantaged background so then you'll have you won't have anything in common with jamal when he comes into this middle class job that he's applied to that he won't fit into the city or neighborhood that middle class affords you to be in and so already even without seeing the person, you have these ideas about a person. And so just to think about what ideas you have about a person when you do see them, you know, it's just, it compounds upon itself. And so I really started to study and try to understand where do these stereotypes come from? What is the science behind them, eugenics behind them? Who, who's perpetuating these stories, you know, and what are the origins of these stories? And I started to work that into my work, mainly with, with symbolism um, and also the titles of the work. Now, in your work, um, you take some of those stereotypical tropes, if you will, about people of color, and you are 
inserting non-people of color in some of those those same notions or ideas. And many of us have heard the term white face. We've heard the term black face, but the term watermelon face is something that I feel like was foreign to me, but really uh, descriptive in terms of just making you think about race and stereotypes. Talk about the use of the term watermelon face in your work. So I started using watermelon face in my work a few years ago. I was initially using blackface, and then I moved on to watermelon face. And when you think about the, do you know the Sambo character from? I do. Yes. And so it was, it was a callback to that character and what that character meant in advertising and what it was meant to represent and how that character was meant to portray black people. And I thought that that was the perfect way to, to mask my, um, the people in my work. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, watermelon, there is a visual trigger that I think that when you talk about Sambo and even if it's something um, that has nothing to do with that, I think there are conversations that are had among people of color, maybe among white people still that relate black people and watermelon. And so when you think about that and how you place or how you use that in your work, I feel like it's very, it's very insightful in, in, in terms of using something that we are very familiar with to maybe recontextualize that um, in a way. Also, you use language very well. And I think that the language that you use to describe the work marries with the work very well. So when you're investigating your your word choices, what are you thinking about? Do you mean for the titles? Yes, I'm sorry, for the titles. Mm-hmm. So whenever I, I usually title a piece before I begin the piece. And my titles are so that when you approach the piece and you you might miss the symbolism, you'll see it. They're very large. So you'll see it. You'll initially see it as a narrative, of course, because there are people in it. And then you might see the piece. You might see the story or you might not see the story. And then you'll see the symbolism. And then you might kind of wonder, what is this piece about? And then you read the title and it becomes very clear. And I do this because... I want to tell these stories about collective consciousness of black people, and I don't want it to be mistaken as anything else. So I purposefully choose very strong titles for each piece because of this. When it comes to the titles, um, when you're talking about genetic inferiority or phrases like crippling handouts for the lazy poor or or the hypersexual male. And I'm kind of just, I'm, I'm pulling out phrases out of some of your actual titles here. Um, these are stereotypes that we are usually fed via the media or, or in some, in some way. So as you digest the media as an artist, as a person, but as an artist, as a mother, what are you looking for or what are you um, mindful of? as you are consuming media? Trigger words, for sure. People see the word, for instance, um, you'll see the word entitlement different than social aid. And I think that's done on purpose. Um, People generally don't like entitlements. 
Um, but people do like the idea of helping the poor, so social aid sounds much better. And so I watch for those kind of words. I listen for them, for trigger words, and what, what does it mean? And I use those words, too, in my work. So, you know, crippling, crippling handout. Handout is a trigger word for sure. Um, genetic. Hypersexual. Jungle bunny. Now, let me be um, be thorough and, and give uh, our, our, our listening audience the full value of, of, of your work. So um, I'll run through a few of the actual titles here. So there's Genetic Inferiority, Darwin's Theory of White Superiority, and Black Unintelligence. We have It's About Hard Work, Not Crippling Handouts for the Lazy Poor. There's the cultural lineage of the hypersexual male. Um, the jungle bunny gave you fever. The only cure is to fuck the bunny. She wants it. So in these instances, you're to, to your, your point, you're not letting the audience or the, the viewer miss what you're trying to really hit at here. You want them to be clear about what you're trying to address. Um, and thinking about the media's role in that, if the media has been intentional about using these words as triggers, what media, if any, do you think is intentional about using non-triggering words, you know, or words that aren't necessarily loaded with the stereotypes that you're portraying here? I'm not sure. I, I mean, there are, I feel like every media outlet does use trigger words. The ones that will go back and explain what they mean when they use a word. Um, I'm, for instance, I listen to NPR. I think they do a good job of saying something and then explaining what they mean when they say it instead of just moving on or instead of it letting it boil into something, into something else. But the media, too, they're not the only storytellers. You know, they only have as much power as we give them. If no one, if we shut them off, if they have no power. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. they're not the only storytellers either. Stories get passed on generationally. Um, there was something I saw on PBS, and it was, a, it was, they gave a little girl a baby doll. I mean, this little girl had to be like three, four years old and asked her to choose the one that she wanted that she thought was the good baby doll. And she chose the white baby doll. And this little girl has very limited exposure to media. And yet she was already influenced by, already influenced by media and influenced by what she hears around her, whether it's coming from her television or, or her radio or not. So how do you, I mean, in that instance, as a mother, as an artist, as a person in the world, um, how do you block out or filter out those stereotypes that you know are perhaps telling you a story that you don't believe or that isn't true? How do you begin to sort of rewrite or tell different stories? I haven't had the opportunity to do that yet because they're so little. Okay. These ones are like only one years old. So they're, you know, they're only saying things like no and mama. <laughs> but um you know, I do, there There was an instance where I was around some family. I come from, um, my husband and I, come, we're, we're very mixed, we're a mixed family, where there were, um, one of the relatives was, was, was saying to her, 
to her daughter, you're so pretty, you have blonde hair and blue eyes. You're so, and she just kept saying it. And she didn't know she was saying it. But she was attributing those factors to, to being pretty. Um, and her, you know, her daughter was, was very young at the time, maybe two years old. But by the time her daughter was three and four, and I would go around her and, you know, we, we were always really close, she would tell me that she was pretty because she had blue eyes and blonde hair, but that I didn't have blue eyes and blonde hair. And she, she was no older than four at the time. And so, you know, those things, that's, it's unfortunate, you know, but we are conditioned to believe what's pretty and what's not, or, or we're just, and it's not that she wouldn't think her daughter was any less beautiful if she didn't have those features, but she's telling her she's beautiful because she has those features. Mm, okay. mm. And so as far as my sons are concerned, you know, I will definitely be the mama in the background, letting them know that they're just as beautiful. You know, they're just as, they're just as whatever they, people look at you and see what you want. And they have a lot to do over as far as it, when it comes to, um, your identity. They do. Because otherwise we would all just be people and we would move on. We wouldn't think about it. But the way that you're perceived is a part of your identity, whether you want it to be or not. Um, and I think that being surrounded by people who tell you you are intelligent, you're beautiful, you start to believe that, especially if they're really persistent. And so that's what I hope to plan to do for my boys. Now, the most recent works in this exhibition, I'm Not Your Chocolate Fantasy, Don't Touch My Hair. Those three works, because there's a, a one, a two, and a three um, for those works, um, those look a little bit different than the other um, other work in the exhibition. Can you maybe talk about um, what you were thinking as you were approaching making those works? So I'm Not Your Chocolate Fantasy, Don't Touch My Hair is about the exoticism of women of color in our society, mainly around our hair. So the idea that you are different because of the texture of your hair, which I find to be very silly, and also to people wanting to touch your hair, um, being treated like a pet or a peacock, and what does that mean whenever people do that to you? It, it, you're not a pet, you're a person. So each of these pieces touches on that. One is specifically about hair. I think the number one is. Uh, number two is about, so when I was pregnant, I would wear, I would buy makeup because I wanted to be pretty. I felt so swollen. And I noticed that the darker you got in the makeup, the names went from like beige number five, you know, MC6, Abaca, to caramel, walnut, chocolate, mocha. And I thought that was so silly. Like, it further exoticizes women of color when you give even things like makeup this exotic name. And so um, number two touches on that, just how skin color is perceived by society that further exoticizes your being when you're labeled as things like chocolate, like you're an edible. Um, and number three has to do with, I call it the help syndrome, like the movie The Help. Yes. Where uh, black women are seen as like intuitively able to solve other people's problems because we're more spiritually connected to the earth somehow. 
which is bogus. <laughs> it's like it's so, you know, that further exoticizes yeah. women of color that we are just like somehow in tuned to. We have old souls. And I just think it's so ridiculous. But that also, too, ties in to a lot of other, you know, more stereotypes against women of color. So specifically that one, the one where people feel like you're, you're more in tune to help them solve their problems. And it gets to the core of this strong black female. Um, and what does that mean? It generally means that people think or believe that you can do without. Um, or, you know, when your son dies, you can do without. When you lose your home, you can do without. You know, you'll find a way. You'll, you're a strong black woman, you know, and that sort of being in tune to the earth ties into that as well. Now, with those, it seems like, compared to your other works in this exhibition, that there's some representation that looks a little bit more like you or that kind of infers that you're now in the work rather than in the previous uh, prints, it seemed to be you're framing a narrative and you're placing people in it as you see fit. But with these three, you're placing yourself in the work. What was that like? What was that decision about? So for my other work, I usually place like my husband and my friends in those works. Um, for these three works, I used myself, you know, I hate to say out of convenience, um, but it was out of convenience that I used myself. But also, too, these were about my personal experiences. I do stuff about collective consciousness, and I don't feel like this falls out of that category at all, being it about all women of color. So I, I thought it, it was not inappropriate to use myself. Okay. And I couldn't help but think about the Salon's song, Don't Touch My Hair. Which I've never heard. Which you've what? I know. You've never heard that song. I know. She lives in New Orleans. And, should be like. <laughs> I mean, my next line of question was really about to go down that road because I felt like as I saw the the work, I thought about that song and I couldn't stop from hearing it in my own head. But you've never heard that song. No. We will have to play that song before you leave, just so we can at least have that moment together. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um. And and you mentioned New Orleans again, and she does live in New Orleans. Um, what's been the biggest difference for you before Katrina, well, before Hurricane Katrina, um, and now for you, Katrina? I mean, New Orleans is changing in the same way Atlanta's changing in mm -hmm. that it's becoming way more gentrified. Um, it used to be a very affordable place to live. It Rent, home prices have skyrocketed unbelievably out of control and people's incomes do, have not budged um, people make very little money in New Orleans in their, in their respective fields even it's not even that everyone's making minimum wage but if you work in technology you make much less than you would working technology somewhere else and now your cost of living is almost just as much as if you live somewhere else um, like San Francisco so that has been the biggest one of the biggest differences that I've seen Overall, in New Orleans, there are a lot of blighted homes in New Orleans since Hurricane Katrina. It's just, it's it's a different landscape. Um, crime's the same, though. Mm. Yeah, it's different. But I knew that I wanted to live close to my family, which were all from New Orleans. They stayed in Baton Rouge after the storm. 
and there's nowhere else in Louisiana that I would live, that I would even consider living. Thinking about your work, your place, where your work is coming from, um, and how you want people to come to your work. When people see your work, what do you want them to, to take from that moment? Well, when people see the work, I hope that they have a conversation with the work. Let me take that back. When people see the work, what usually happens is that they see the work, they read the title, and they try to confine me immediately if I'm at the opening because they want further explanation of the work. And then they will, some people will thank me, some people will get their friends over to be a part of the conversation. They're really curious about the work, and they... um, a lot of people are in agreement about what the the subject matter of the work is. And so my hope is that people walk away just having conversations with each other, having conversations with themselves. Like we all, all of us have a hand in this black-white. It's not other people that are just seeing us in this way. Like this is so much a part of our society that we are... We are seeing, we're all seeing each other this way. And then there are consequences to seeing each other this way too. Things are linked in ways that are going to be really hard to unmarry. And so I want people to think about what, what's the next generation, what's the next step? What's the next generation going to be like if we continue down this path? But, or can we go down this path? Can we go down a different path and have a different future? That's going to be a hard road, hard, long road. Well, we're all in it together, so we'll be traveling down that road uh, whether we want to or not. We have to decide which way it goes. Katrina Andre, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I enjoyed the conversation.